So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. Making change happen in your classroom can take more than just making a new lesson or creating a new unit. Often, changes require a whole new mindset or building a new culture in your classroom. Project-based learning is one of those changes. So today, I chat with project-based learning expert Andrew Miller about making project-based learning work. Hello out there to the interwebs. Um, and my name is Andrew Miller. I'm actually currently a, a instructional coach at Shanghai American School. Yes, in Shanghai, China. Um, but I'm actually transitioning to a, a new position at Singapore American School. Congratulations. Um, here, thank you. Uh, this summer. And I will be a director of personalized learning. So it's going to be really exciting. I actually just finished up a nice little kind of retreat with my new team and thinking about what we're going to be doing. So, you know, I've been doing the work of project-based learning for a very long time. I, I started out by you know, starting out in this system that really was not good for all kids. I don't know. Many, many probably have this story where you come in on your first day of teaching, you're excited, you are just in it to win it, right? Like you were like, this is going to be the best. I love my life. And then whatever happens, something happens like on that first experience where all your hopes and dreams are crushed. And, and I don't mean that in kind of like, it's kind of like a half joking, half truth in the sense that yeah. You know, you're always going to have to wrestle with those things. But I was really in a place where it was like, is this really what I want to do? But I got lucky in the sense that, that a, a program was going to be opening up in my district that was going to be more of a project-based school. And, right. I, and it really aligned kind of with what I had believed, leaving a good kind of teacher prep program. And I was like, this might be the way I want to do things. And so I started kind of getting, you know, getting my own PD on around that, but also like right. working with teachers and that that's awesome. I, and I think you, you touch on certain truths in that, you know, everything, there's a quote from uh, Mike Tyson that says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And <laughs> not that it's quite that, that brutal, but when you're teaching, everyone has a plan until things go completely awry or until the real truth that you have to be planning around uh, kind of presents itself. And then you have to start getting practical, like, okay, okay, I, I know the philosophical thing that I should do, but the reality is very different. And, and adjusting what we do to that reality can sometimes be the ultimate challenge in, in transforming instruction, right? Completely. I think my new favorite thing to say is plan for pivots. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, like plan to change, plan for change. Because, and I think it's really actually important. I mean, we could apply that to this work of PBL. Like there is going to be a sense of, planning and purpose and where you want to go with students. And I think that's actually a pitfall. Sometimes people just kind of think it's some more of a osmosis experiential component of, Oh, I hope we get there. And and that's not what it is. Right. There's gotta be intentionality, but even within that, it's going to change because there's students in a real authentic context and it's cool and you just got to roll with it. But I think if you plan for the fact that it's going to change and plan intentional benchmarks in your project for, okay, I know I might have to pivot at this point because yeah. students need this, or I need to pivot because we're not quite going along the path that I'm hoping. And I need to kind of bring them back into the fold um, on this direction. Like just right. that's a good strategy, but like planning out those pivots really can help you. Yeah. I, I think that makes an awful lot of sense. So we're getting into this right away, but I don't want to, I don't want to miss our opening, like our, our trademark question. So what have you been thinking about in education lately? Well, as a new director of personalized learning, obviously my, my head has been in that space, but more specifically within the context of that, and we could have a whole discussion about personalized learning and what it is and what it is not. But one of the things that really is, is this idea of competency-based systems. 
Um, this idea of, um, and, you know, how do we construct competencies that are meaningful and authentic to student learning, where students move at their own pace, where this idea of novice to maybe you would call leading or expert within a competency, like constructing arguments or maybe scientific inquiry, right? Some really big ideas that we value. How might those things be the way that we assess and, you know, kind of pre- create that infrastructure for teaching and learning versus more, you know, grade level based standards, not saying that that's a, you know, a super bad thing, but I'm saying, why does it have to be that? I don't understand that. Like that's an antiquated c- way of doing school. Um, right. I'm all, I'm all for breaking down this, the barriers of classrooms and, you know, grade levels. I know that might seem kind of radical to some people, but right. I do think that's a direction we're going. And I'm really interested in that considering I'm going to have to be kind of leading that work, but also mm-hmm. because I believe in it. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity there to kind of rethink how we do school. I, I, I'm, I spend a lot of time going to a lot of different schools. And I think that you know, I, we've talked many times on this podcast about this idea of the grammar of schools and what we think is normal based upon our experiences and what we've gone through over the 17 years of our education um, and how that might be like an anchor for us to to limit our thinking. But um, I go to a lot of schools where they do have mixed gr- groups, mixed levels. I was at a I could pick many, but there was a Quaker school in Chicago that is doing some really fantastic work and they blend their their students from different levels together and it creates some really interesting dynamics of support and of um, the older students teaching and supporting and working together and it, it can be really beautiful when you see it that way it's just really hard for people who haven't ever seen that dynamic in work in place to consider how it would work even at high schools that don't have a lot of mixed level electives sometimes that can be really difficult for them to see yeah, completely. And I think similar to that, this idea of, so you have like grade level age bands or whatever you want to call it, yeah. this idea of siloed content areas, right? Like constructing yeah. arguments is something that occurs in, I would almost argue all the time, but yeah. why, why is it that I'm just teaching it or just assessing it within the context of, you know, English language arts or social studies or whatever that is? We do right. it all the time. Why don't I serve as a mentor or advisor and help students work towards that competency? And furthermore, why is it in a quote unquote normal class, you know, like what, what is this idea of, of a class, you know, like, Oh, I go to class. Why is that a thing? Kids go to learning. Like they go to auto United nations, they go and they play sport, they go on field trips. Like those could all be mechanisms and ways to honor the learning in different ways versus just the quote unquote class that we go to every day. They're, they're kind of like artificial containers and limitations, right? We, the, the, the work that the kids can dive into in a class defined as, I'm just going to say social studies as a social studies teacher, presents a, a boundary that prevents them from going forward. Like, and, and, and sometimes we can limit their curiosity by saying, nope, you're off, you're off base because you've folded some other content area together. When in reality, they're, they're doing what we really want them to do, which is to integrate us into the bigger picture of understanding that's going on. And I I think there's a lot of value to thinking the way that you're, you know, you're talking right now. Yes. And it also has, when I think about, if we're going to kind of think about project-based learning, there's some really provocative uh, implications for how we might do PBL um, and and, and how that, with how that might mesh with this idea of competency-based pathways. Right. So let's, let's get the, the start of this story together. So I remember back in the day, and I'm, 
it it could be back like 2010 or 2011 now at this point, you tweeting about project-based learning early on. And that was one of the ways that I connected with your tweets and, and eventually ran into you in one of the workshops that you were running. So like what led you to getting so committed to project-based learning um, in the early days? Because I, I want to say that you were way ahead of what I saw as the trend of project-based learning. Yeah, I mean, like I said, when I first entered into this, like for me, it was a philosophical, there was an underpinning value system that I felt it matched, but like the system wasn't doing it for me. Um, mm-hmm. But then I got lucky and I went to that school, right? Well, I think what really happened for me is at the school, I was seeing the potential of what it could be to transform students' lives. Right. Because the school I was at was really, frankly, a mix. It was really um, a pro- prototype, prototype school. Like we were really trying to like try new things. Um, you could call it an alternative program. I don't really like to call it that. It should be yeah. mainstream, but whatever. Uh, but in the context of that, we have students from all over the map, um, you know, very diverse population all over the place in terms of socioeconomic and also all over the place in terms of their level of success in schools. Like for some students, it was, it'd been pretty successful, but they just didn't feel like they were getting challenged enough. Yeah. Similarly, we had students that had failed out of every single opportunity um, that had been in front of them because the system wasn't working for them. And so I started doing projects with them in different contexts. And I saw like, yes, in the mainstream courses that I was teaching, like um, humanities or even digital citizenship, they were seeing success. But the other thing that was really resonating with me was, like I said, we had some students that were credit deficient. And so they were creating their own personalized project to meet the outcomes of courses that they had not um, been successful in. So maybe a student failed, unfortunately, uh, you know, ninth grade English or maybe even ninth grade art you know, I would be serving as a mentor and looking through those learning targets and outcomes for that course or standards and saying, okay, well, how do you want to meet that? How might we meet that? How can we leverage the community here at the school? Even though I'm a, you know, I am your English and social studies teacher, like let's partner with others and let's make it happen. And so they were able to retrieve credit, you know, all through that. And I was like, wow, like, why aren't we doing this for all kids? Like this, it totally makes sense that we should be doing this. You know, that, that line of thinking where you're saying, I've, I've had these kids in a special condition and I've met them, I've done more, I've adjusted, I've modified or given them a little bit more freedom to kind of get that credit back. I think that happens a lot in education. Like I was at a school that went fully mainstreamed for special education. There were no special education rooms. Everyone was in mainstream classes and they had intensive supports for them. But I had to make changes to my classroom to meet the needs of those kids. And immediately within like a few weeks, I realized any change I was making for those kids was helping everyone, right? Like Mm -hmm. you come in with some skepticism, like how are these changes going to affect negatively sometimes the other kids that are, and what you realize is an accommodating classroom that looks at what a student needs and asks them to address that and um, meets them where they are is going to be better for everybody. And I think that that um, is a, a really strong point that you make just universally in education. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it, right? Like maybe, I mean, I'm talking for maybe a, a very specific example, right? But, you know, we all live in different contexts and mm-hmm. teach in different ways, but it still can work. You just have to make it work for you and your students. And I think that's but, but you do that every day, right? Like, that's what we do every day. Like, as great teachers, we know our kids. We know we know the context. We know what's relevant to them. And our job is just to pick the right kind of, I guess we would call teacher moves or pedagogical moves that meet them where they're at. And, and I think PBL is a framework with which to kind of use as a lens to say, how can I help students? How can I empower them? And so, like, if I'm held accountable to the curriculum standards, how do I get them there? But there's, a, there's some really good flexibility and voice of choice and authenticity that, that can really 
kind of make it a, a better experience for all, frankly, for teachers too. I find it to be a more enjoyable experience for me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. When I'm doing projects, when I'm working in that environment and the culture of project-based learning, I find that I'm getting more value in the conversations that I'm having with students as well. You're, you're having more meaningful conversations specifically with individuals and you, you learn the depth of them so much better. You know, and that's kind of why I kept coming back to it, working through all the difficulties. So there was such value in the, in what it did to the relationships in the class. But like going back to what you started talking about, like some things that you think it can and provide students with, but um, what specific skills does the curriculum of project-based learning provide to kids that they might not otherwise be getting in a different environment or a different structure? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, I like to use what's called like the yes and approach. Um, uh, and by that, I mean, like, let's, let's keep it really hundred percent clear. Like we have curriculum, we have standards, like yeah. most of us do. And, you know, I'm at a school right now, very high stakes, right? I have students in IB and AP and, you know, SAT, like we, we live in a culture of high stakes testing and, you know, even abroad, I'm experiencing it every mm-hmm. single day. Mm-hmm. And so there's this pressure to hit the curriculum. Hit, you know, I, I understand this idea of coverage. I would prefer to use the word uncoverage. But mm-hmm. regardless of that, you, you have to curriculum. So, yes, you're, you will hit your curriculum because you are intentional about it. And then I say, yes, and your students are also going to get a lot of other great things. They're going to be learning how to work in teams more effectively. They're going to learn how to self-manage. They're going to learn how to be more self-advocating. They're going to learn how to, you know, present their ideas with confidence and passion. They're going to learn how to make connections between different content areas. They're going to, you know, and I, I haven't really found my favorite word to name these types of, I guess you'd call skills or competencies. Yeah. I just call them, you know, just good stuff, um, you know, that we, <laughs> we, we value. Um, and I think everyone would value. I had the conversation and I've done this through a lot of my workshops. Like what is your ideal graduate, right? We talk about this all the time. Yeah. What is your learner profile? Like, what do you want your students to be? And it's all this stuff, right? This is not mm-hmm. a new thing we want. It's something we want. Well, if we want it, then we need to have our teaching and learning and what we do every day match what we value. Um, And similarly, I I believe we assess what we value. And I think we do a great job of assessing our content. I think all teachers have that skill really well and build that skill. And there's intention to that. I think the area growth at schools, um, and there are pockets of this, but the generally air, schools need to focus on assessing what they value in terms of those skills. Why can't we give feedback to a student on how they're, you know, doing in collaboration? Why can't we collect portfolio of evidence on how they're presenting and meeting these, you know, these other types of skills? Right. And I know schools are already doing that. And I just think that we, we should assess the content and more standardized curriculum in addition to these other things, because if we do, we're saying we value this, we believe in this, and we're going to help your child get better at these things, as well as the more um, prescribed content that we must do because of the nature of schooling. I've really seen some impressive schools where that part you're talking about, like we really need to do a good job of supporting them in their speaking skills and supporting them in all these other really important things. And and the schools that have gone to project-based learning, I think a lot of them see the value in that and have had conversations about uh, making clear uh, that instruction and, and organizing that instruction for their schools across the curriculum, right? Whereas it used to be just a curricular, like a content level organization. You get this great dialogue about what do we really see that's important. And, and I agree with you. If you have a vision of the skills that you want um, students to have 
And you just start with that. That's a really good starting place for basically any practice in education that you're trying to promote or transformation that you're trying to build. So I think that's great advice for people. Um, so in your opinion, if you were going to, like, there's so much to, to doing anything well in class and project-based learning is no different. There's a lot of really important ideas behind it, but what in your opinion is the key to successful implementation of a project-based learning program in a classroom or in a school? Um, the first one that I would co- comes to mind is a clear mission and vision for your school, yeah. um, it, which goes back to what we were just talking right, about. Yeah. Like, if you know what you want students to be by the time they leave you, and if you believe in that and you set that out and you name it, then it requires either change or modification at the classroom level, right? It filters down because yep. we're all heading towards the same direction. So I think schools that are doing it well are engaging in authentic, you know, uh, mission conversations with all the stakeholders, parents, community members, the teachers to say, yeah, what do we really do here? What do we provide that is powerful and unique for your child and, and how are we going to get them there? So I think that's, that's step one. Um, and obviously, you know, let's say you set that out and you start to get that professional learning plan in place around how you want to, um, you know, engage in that, whether that's, you know, bringing in trainers or, you know, book studies, all that, that's great. And I think you need to have that. But I think like, let's say you do that initial kind of onboarding with your, maybe your grassroots supporters, those who are, as we like to say, you know, abroad, super keener uh, on it. Like they're just so in it to win it. You want to nurture that. I would say just don't water the weeds, like don't do it. Cause there's always going to be people that, you know, I just, you know, there, there, there's like cynics and skeptics, right? Like there's always going to be that cynics are, you know, negative. Like they just don't believe in it. Whereas skeptics are just, you know, I'm not sure about that. And I have some serious questions about that. You know, think, right. support, support your skeptics. Forget about the cynics. We're always going to have cynics. You know, like, they're, they'll either choose to come to the table eventually or they won't. So you really want to honor the people that are in it to win it but also support the skeptics in that process. And I think the final thing I would say is anybody, you know, who's in education, you know, we're talking about, like, a design cycle. Yeah. Uh, allow for rapid prototyping of projects. Like, get in there, try a smaller one. Don't freak out. Don't be like, we're going to do an integrated 1000 hour, you know, over six months project. Like it's okay to start small and just be like, you know, let's do this like two and a half week thing out and really reflect on it and make it better and be like, okay, that was a quick win. And that way it's this idea of like, let's say it does fall because I've done projects that have totally just been like, well, that just wasn't very good. Then it's not like you've controlled the failure, so to speak. Like you've had it and you've gone, okay, whoa, we can really make this better. And it's not like, how do I, like an epic failure, right? We're talking like gaming at the epic failure. Like, you know, you throw your hands up and you're super upset about it. You just have a a, a pretty straightforward learning experience for you as as an educator. And it allows you to quickly turn around and make it better for the next implementation. You know, the first time I had a project go completely wrong, I just... I, I made an on-the-fly decision that took us down a wrong path, and things kind of came apart at that point. And like you said, if you if you plan too big at first until you start to realize some of those pitfalls, it, it you kind of feel like, oh my gosh, I'm halfway down this road. I have to keep going, but I've made a mistake. Um, but at that time, when that happens to you, I think 
I didn't know what to do. So I just reached out to the kids. I'm like, what's not working? What did we do wrong? And what should we do to fix it? And we use that as an opportunity, which actually helped to give over some of the control to kids in their projects. Like we need the freedom to do this. They had an understanding of what the work they were doing was and what, how do we create an environment to fix it? So, but you learn that as time goes on, you know, the first time it happens, you just have fear and frustration. Like, Oh my gosh, I've made these mistakes. Um, I, I think when you're used to being in that flexible environment and talking to kids about what they need, it gets so much easier to, to handle those things adeptly and, and feel like things didn't go the way we wanted, but we're not out of control. While we're sharing like favorite failures, like yeah. I'll share one that I did. Um, so I was, and this was like when I early on, you know, like I think in my first, so first one of my first projects, like uh, I was, I think I came out of a place where I was unsure about the structure of my projects and was I really holding students accountable? So kind of in a reflex action, uh, this is what happened. I launched the project with a great launch and entry and inquiry and questioning yep. and they're, they're in it and I'm excited. I'm looking at that list of what we might call the need to know list. They have asked the right questions. I'm like, yes, I've designed it so well. I'm so excited. And I get into it and Andrew falls back into this place of like, I just started doing, came to class and said, here's a lesson, here's a lesson, here's a lesson, here's a, here's a lesson. And I took it all on. So here I am falling back into the kind of marching through the curriculum yep. problem until one day a student like, like raises his hand and, and calls me out. And he says, Mr. Miller, when are we ever going to get to the project? And right. I just remember, and I just remember being like, Oh, crushed. Yes. <laughs> oh no. But it was like, you know what? Yes, you are completely right. I have totally messed this up because I fell back into the pitfall of just kind of marching through curriculum out of fear, right. out of out of just not doing it. And I immediately pivoted and said, you know what? You guys are ready. You were ready two days ago to take some ownership. What am I doing? I am so sorry. And so I really learned from that, right? Like ever since yeah. then, it's like, okay, wait, how do I read like you're saying where they're at? How do I maybe go, okay, it seems like you're ready to kind of maybe take some ownership. I've given you yeah. some scaffolds, but you're ready, right? Like, I'll, but I'll, I'll back off. Like, I'm so sorry. I'll get out of your way. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's funny because the, the, at the intersection of like, you know, your professionalism and personal crises are these moments where you learn a lot about teaching. And I remember doing a project in an anthropology class that I was teaching. And I was worried because anthropology wasn't a typical high school subject. They didn't have a lot of background knowledge. And so my uh, daughter had gotten sick and spent a couple days in the hospital and I was exhausted and I came to school. And instead of keeping the freedom, keeping it going, I felt like I needed to grasp control pull things back together. So as I was doing that, I'm like, today I'm going to talk about this topic. And my kids were like, well, but we've already learned about that on our own when we had the time to do right. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> well, I guess I'm just going to trust you and, and, and not fall back to this old pattern. And that was, that was way back now. I mean, that's probably 2005 or 2006 when I was trying to like try on this idea of doing like a lot of independent student work. So, um, but I think that it's kind of common to fall back into old habits until you as a teacher aren't just like um, trying something out for real, but you really understand the environment that you create. Because a lot of times I think when you jump into this, you want it because you know what it could yield, but you're not even really sure how to operate in that space. 
you know, until you learn how to operate in the space of student freedom. For instance, solving problems for kids. I think as a teacher, sometimes when a kid comes to you with a problem, you want to give them an answer and you want to jump in. And if you see kids in a debate, you want to get in and sometimes mitigate that debate. Whereas I think now I see those things happen and I sit back and I give them time and I let them grow and develop rather than providing with an answer. I just kind of listen. I'm like, Hmm, that's really interesting. How are you going to work on that? Right. Yeah. I've done this. I had the exact same thing. They're having like a little bit of a tiff because they're trying to work through a problem. Right. And you're like, and you just, you want to be Superman or wonder woman. You want to jump in and save the day and you do it and you pat yourself on the bat. And you're like, good job, Andrew. You <laughs> got in there and you saved them. Good job. But what you actually did was robbed them of a valuable learning experience. Right. And that's, and that's like, whoops, you know, big right. whoops. And I'm not saying like, okay, if it's really bad, yes, you need to jump in there and help. Of course. Right. But you really have to check yourself. And almost like, um, if we're a Seinfeld person, we're talking, you know, serenity now. Yeah. Like you have to be like, you have to in the moment be like, okay, it's okay. No one's hurt yet. It's okay. I'm just going to wait a minute. And then as they kind of, as the volume, you know, they kind of go, uh, uh, and they, they right. come, and come back down, you go, then you go over, you say, Hey guys, I saw what happened. How's it going? Are you doing okay? I am so excited about that. It sounds like this is what you decided. You worked through it. And you know what? I'll keep checking in with you. Like that is, that's a powerful 100%. thing. Yeah. But it's really hard to get there. I, I had to put in some crutches for myself to help me get out of those situations without like sharing an answer. Whenever they would come to me and like ask me to resolve it, because sometimes the kids know that pattern as well. And they prompt you to jump in and do that. I would say, man, I can think about three different ways I might go about that, but I wouldn't dare deny you the chance to figure it out for yourself. So you tell me what you would do. And then they get all like, Whoa, and they want to hear later on. But um, it just kind of says like, it's a way for you to value the opportunity for them to figure it out and let them know that that's what you're doing. Like, I know what I do, but I'm more concerned about, do you know what you would do? Work on it. Let me know what you see. And yeah, I had a, I had a similar moment when, when it starts cooking, like let's say the project's really cooking with kids and the hum is there and they just go in and then you just stand there and you, you know, you've been checking in, but then like you right. stand back and you don't want a helicopter Right. You don't want to be like our, our wonderful helicopter parents that come in and, you know, jump in and like, just keep pestering. Cause I've had a kid do that where I keep checking with like, Mr. Miller, I got this. I'm like, Oh geez. Oh, Oh, sorry. You know, I got to back off a little bit. So yeah. that's really, it, it's, a, it's a delicate balance and it's uncomfortable, but we work through it. That's it. Like you work through it, you figure it out, you give them these opportunities. What I really loved was the moments where my kids had figured something out so outside of what I was thinking, but I, I would see them do something and know I'm making that a part of the project because they've redefined it so well. They've done something so unique that I just wanted to try and capture that again. And it doesn't always work, but I, I had a kid who turned in a project. It was absolutely not what I had asked for, but it was a hundred percent better than what I had asked for. So they had kind of, like come up with something so unique and so cool that I couldn't help but say like, this has got to happen. Yeah, definitely. You know, sometimes we just have to get out of the way. Honestly, and that can be hard because it's our job to put ourselves in the path a lot of times, but too true. So um, let's kind of move on a little bit. So where are some places that you see, like if somebody is starting to look at project-based learning and they want to see some examples, where are some places that you know are just doing it right? Where can they take a look? Well, in terms of resources, let's go there. You know, I mean, 
you can yeah. go to districts and stuff too, but you know, uh, PBL works or the Buck Institute for education is, uh, is also, um, they're the same group now and they have some great project cards that you can go and look at that are just, if you're looking for kind of, um, just like an idea. And I really encourage people, by the way, as you look at projects, like sometimes we also get down this kind of, um, you know, almost, um, overly focused on finding that project. I want a sixth grade science project now. And we we look for that thing. And like, I just like keeping it real. It may not exist. I encourage you to look around at other grade levels at other ideas, because then you can figure out what, like you can find something that you can modify. So really just like kind of opening up for shopping, like go, go window shopping for great projects. I think you can do that a lot of these places um, in terms of like, I mean, I'm abroad, right? So I, I, most of my world is living in kind of what's around me. So, I mean, some places that are doing it well is I would, I would toot my own horn here in Shanghai, but not really my own horn. It's really the teachers. We've got a great group of teachers doing work here at Shanghai at the Innovation Institute, where it's really some powerful transdisciplinary projects at the middle school. They're doing some great course-based projects. Same thing at the elementary school. Um, I think, um, Another great school out there. There are a bunch of schools in Singapore that are really trying to embrace project-based learning. In fact, a lot of their, um, uh, you might say, uh, almost like college-based courses, they they use project-based learning as their methodology. So they're really from a, from like a whole country perspective, really right. trying to, to do some good things. I think that if like what you said about Singapore makes a lot of sense. Um, a good friend of mine, Tom DeCord, has done some work there. And when he went over and was talking to several different schools, they said this is a national Singapore has declared it a national priority to build that kind of an environment in schools because they just need to have that kind of thinking in their country um, to succeed and to to be uh to, to put their kids in a position where they're ready for the world. And I think that calling it a national priority is an amazing step uh, for something like that. And it's, you know, they're in a unique position to do so. And I think that, you know, when we talk about the United States, for example, we've got a lot of almost like many countries within that context, right? Lots of state space. But even some states are really trying to, you know, kind of also declare it a a priority. I mean, whether you're talking about like Virginia or you're talking about, you know, Tennessee, a lot of these, a lot of states are really embracing it and really trying to push for that type of, like I said, that ideal graduate and therefore embracing PBL is one of the, the ways in which they, they make it happen. Every and day. I, I think that some of the things that are also, there's a lot of things that are working parallelly in education that are going to make it so that you can do those changes. Like there's an, this growing discussion of standards-based grading, um, like mm-hmm. you said, like competency-based grading. And that when you're looking to do that, you have to like, what's the environment so that you can have that kind of individual um, like learning happening and project-based learning fits nicely. It just pairs very well with that. So if I go to a school district and they're talking about, you know, these, and I think that both of these things were things that maybe eight, seven, eight years ago, it was really hard to get people to have those conversations at a, on a broad level, but now the environment's changed to some degree. And I think that it's a little easier to have those conversations. That makes me a little hopeful. Yeah, it makes me hopeful too. You know, there are days where we really get, I mean, distressed with all the things happening in our lives, especially mm-hmm. in teaching and learning, whether it's the daily grind or, you know, you know, the fact that you have to be doing a lot of marking or, you know, you have all these things you have to be doing and conferences and, but there are, you know, you, when you take a step back and especially like during the summer where you can kind of go, okay, how are things going? There are opportunities there to kind of take a step back and look at the 10,000 foot view and go, you know what? we're getting better. You know, it's every day we're getting a little bit better. And so that gives you hope. And for me, it's like every day, 
you know, I always, I think the idea of like, if, if a student can experience like one great project in their educational experience, then we've done, we've done them well, right. It's okay. You know, you know, let's, let's, let's just be happy for those small victories. You know, I, going back to that discussion earlier about the grammar of schools and tradition, I think that sometimes in my mind, when I'm working with kids, I want to make further changes possible. Like you can't bring it all the way to a destination. Sometimes you just have to make those options possible. Right. And I felt like if I was doing project-based learning, if I was doing some standards-based grading assignments and I was giving them an experience in it, it really opened their minds to different ways to learn. And that was, that's doing something towards preparing the ground for future changes that are coming. And I think that, um, sometimes it's just healthier and I, it's healthier for me as a teacher to think that way rather than to feel like I have to do the transformation myself. Yes. You know, absolutely. Yep. Okay. So let's go on then. Uh, we talked about doing it right, but because you're talking about changing your culture, there's a lot, there's a lot in it. Right. And, and you're going to jump in and make mistakes, but what are some of the common initial mistakes or, or pitfalls that you identify for those people who are getting started? Where does it go wrong? Yeah. I, I think I mentioned this early, like too big, too fast. Um, I, I, I think PBL, the power of it is that it can break down those walls and silos, you know, like, Oh, we can integrate and how powerful is that? And I, I'm a hundred percent an advocate for that. Right. Like that's how I believe, but from a kind of sanity standpoint, you know, and, and again, I want to be really clear, not just for you, but for the students. And I'll talk more about that. Sometimes a, a, a straightforward, maybe two to three week, or, you know, maybe we'll say 10 to 15 contact hours, maybe 20 contact hours, on a smaller project can be just as powerful as a integrated, you know, 50 hour project. Um, right. Students experience success, you experience success, but there's also this idea of like, sometimes these big projects are also too much for students. Yeah. If we're changing the way we're doing school, then we're changing the way that students are doing school and yeah. experiencing that. And if it's a big change for them, if they've been used to kind of being a little more passive or being told what to do, and now we're saying to them, no, you have choice. And they're kind of like, what, what? Like, <laughs> that's not that nothing. Might, yeah, exactly. You, it's you need not to nothing mind. to tell right, them. Yeah. I mean, it, think about a kid who's been in a class where they get lectured to every day and they may not uh, love it and they may be passionate about it, but at the same time, they have a clear expectation of what's going to happen. And if you have that kid who goes into like record mode when they walk into class and then suddenly you shift it and you're asking them questions, but you're not asking for the answer. You're asking for their answer. That's a huge mental shift, right? Like yeah. they can't look I've at done, their notes. I've done stuff like that with students yeah. where I've asked them what their questions are and they've said, we don't do that. Yeah. We don't, don't, we don't question them. Right. <laughs> If you're the only teacher doing it in a school where it's not happening, you have to expect that you're going to have to prepare the soil a little bit more in order to get what you want from students, right? And um, but but then the converse of that is if you have a teacher who's doing projects but not interact um, integrating it with other parts of the school, and you're you can have schools where they're doing too many projects. I also think right. That so, is a huge one. I, yeah, that is a huge pitfall. So when you're integrating, right, then students are working on a project that's yep. cross in multiple areas and things yep. so they can into in it and they're not it's not another thing right yes. but if you're doing multiple small projects then you're doing project overload and kids start crying that is also a real experience from what i've done it's like we just got so excited that we're like oh my gosh there's a project art and science and math and yeah it's just like the poor kids are crying and so right you're right the converse on this is 
when you integrate, you don't have to worry about that as much, but let's, but I'm also saying start small. When you do start small, put up that calendar, whether you're using a Google calendar or whatever yeah. tool and really kind of map out like when is, when is one, when is one project landing the plane? When is one taking off? So students yeah. feel kind of a, they can move from project to project or you're spacing out when they're not doing projects. Like right. my students love lit circles as a kind of method of engaging in text. So yeah. I use lit circles to kind of intersperse between uh, projects and they really appreciated it because it was a different way of engaging with things. It was kind of a, you know, a taking a step back and doing a little, something a little bit different and not as maybe intensive and they appreciated it. So, you know, really take it slow. Don't overwhelm students just figure out kind of what that might look like. Absolutely. And then, you know, I, one of the things that I used to do to try and understand and get um, an understanding of where they were in their other classes, just ask, tell me the things that you're talking about in your classes. What are the things that you're doing that you're excited about? And if I could find a way to roll that in so that the work they were doing in other classes applied into my class, it was like a subtle way of trying to integrate and discuss. It might breed some conversations with their teachers from other classes, but it, it just kept me grounded in the bigger picture of what they were doing which when you're starting off, isn't always an easy thing to get. If you don't have uh, the shared work time with people, if you don't have PLC time across curriculum, of, across uh, curriculum areas, that can be, that can be really challenging. It's not so simple as saying, Oh, I'm just going to integrate what English departments doing because you may have no idea or way to connect with that. Right. The structures may not allow for that authentic yeah. collaboration. And so that's another thing like, and I, I you know, structures do need to match what we want as well, right? So whether that's common scheduling, common planning, and those kinds of things, those are also things. But even let's say we don't have that right now, you can still start small, but you can still, you know, we collaborate um, digitally to kind of, you know, lay the field of, you know what, like, for example, maybe you're talking to a math teacher and you're saying, you know what, are you flexible? And they're like, you know, I can't, I got to do it then. I'm like, okay, you know what, I'm going to wait to start at this point. So you can kind of have those digital conversations as well. Right. All right, so um, let's do, we, we talked about how it's culture, and we've talked about how um, some of the pitfalls and some of the things that you can do right. But if a person is going to begin, and we're not even going to talk about getting into like the uh, the gold standard for project based learning just yet, right? Like the really technical details. Where should a person start to begin changing the culture of their classrooms to prepare themselves for project based learning? Yeah, I think for me there are kind of like my my top three. Um, one is a culture of questioning. Um, and so that, and that, that makes sense, right? Like anything that gets them asking questions in any ways. And so that means teaching them how to ask good questions, honoring their questions, make the inquiry like part of just the culture of the classroom. The fact that students get some to ask questions and questions are valued and you help them ask them. I think that's, that's number one, because then when you get into a project and you say, what do we need to know to get this done? They're not looking at you like, well, I don't do that. It's just a natural part of who they are. Like we ask questions here. Right. Yeah. I think another one is um, this idea of a culture of collaboration um, that we learn from each other. We work in pairs. We work in triads. We work in large groups. We value each other. We share our learning together. We, um, we as a teacher, I support students in, in their collaborative skills. I teach them how to make uh, effective decisions. I teach them how to listen to their peers and how to, you know, give feedback. Like those are all you know, those are, and that's like just a good skill we want anyways. But when you do that, when you get into projects that are more collaborative, mm -hmm. it doesn't require as much heavy lifting. And right. finally, I think similar to that is a culture of feedback and critique, um, which is, which dovetails nicely with collaboration. But this idea of we continually revise our work, we are always getting better. 
And so that's a growth mindset thing, but that we seek peers for that critique. So we're talking critique protocols, effective feedback, way, uh, methods and structures to make it happen. I like to use the terms like your most recent draft. I don't like to use the term second or third draft because then I'm saying to students, you're going to revise things based on where you're at. Some of you may take a couple tries. Some of you may take more than that. And it's more of about, but we, we continually reflect and revise yeah. our work and critique our work and get better all the time. It's iterative learning. Like you're, there's iterations. Like here's my first iteration. You know, it's funny. I actually, it, it's not like a standard or anything, but I tried to stop saying first draft and final draft because so many students had this idea that there's going to be a rough draft and then a final draft. And I really wanted more. And so um, just to create this idea that, well, you're constantly changing it. You're constantly fixing it. In fact, one of the biggest things that ever happened to me, the first time I was ever using Schoology as like a, a, an LMS system, um, kids got feedback after the assignment was over. I'd graded an assignment and then they kept going back and it was five weeks after the actual assignment and people were still making changes to the things that they had submitted. And it was so weird to me, but it was like they were getting feedback and they cared. So they wanted to embody that. And that made me change my classroom around and say like, you can always keep adding. If, if what you're doing is improving your learning, then I'm never going to stop you from, from doing that. You know, and even after the grade has been taken, if they're really engaged in it, it's amazing what they'll do in terms of wanting to fix it and make it right and be so invested in whatever it is that you've asked them to do. Um, and it was a little bit of a shock. I guess I just have to be blunt about it. Like, I guess at the core of me, I thought they were doing it because I made them. And in reality, when you do it right, they're going to do it because they see value and they're passionate and they want to. And that that's something I, I love about project-based learning because it brings out what I believe is a better truth about why kids do what they do. I don't want to have to compel them. It should drive them on its own. And, and that was something I think is really important for this work as people are jumping in. Completely. I mean, something's not summative until you tell them that it is. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I mean, that's a, that's a construct that we we've created in our system. Like we've done, yeah. done that. And, and I think it's funny because I know teachers struggle with that too. Like, and I know I did early on this idea of like, well, it's summative. I'm like, but is it though? Like, but is it though? Like, why is that a thing? Like, oh, it's because you said it is. So sometimes we, and that brings up another kind of, kind of big picture um, idea. I think that we need to think about um, is why, when we could talk about assessment, why is every student doing the same assessment and they all have the same number of assessments on things? If we're meeting students where they're at, it meaning that I need to assess the student a couple times to really see if they've got it. Whereas this student, they got it the right, maybe after four times, like it's okay, you know, to do that. And I, I think this idea of like, you know, summative and, and I, I just, I just like to use the term body of evidence. Like what's right. the evidence saying, show me, show me everything you got, right. Put everything right. out there, show me your evidence. And from that, we can then determine a grade. If, if I mean, I wish grades weren't there, but we have them, yeah. but we'll determine what the grade is. This is what, but from evidence from every student, but that evidence is going to look and sound different. And it's going to look, and it's going to have different numbers and types for all types of students. Right. It could be a conversation. It could be, yes, it could be a traditional quiz. Yes, it could be this, but use evidence versus formative and summative. You know, as a department supervisor, I would have a lot of conversations with people when the student would be gone for a long time and they were trying to get that student caught up and they're like, well, they have to do all this work. And I would like just have a discussion and say, do, do they though? you're grading on a learning objective. You're not, the assignments aren't required as part of the course. The learning objective is. Mm -hmm. And if you can demonstrate, if they can demonstrate to you and in your professional opinion, they've met the learning objective. That's all that need be done. 
in my opinion. And you have the freedom. And as teachers, sometimes we forget that power that we have. We're assessing objectives. We're deciding if they've met standards for the class. And if they've met the standard for the class, but it didn't come about in terms of the five assignments or the three assignments or, you know, like, then go ahead and say, you've met the objective. Let's move on. And sometimes the thing that gets in the way is like, well, how would I work the points in doing that? Well, <laughs> and like you said, yeah, that's point. where points get, get in rid the of way. points. Gross. Right. That, that's where the points Gross. get in the way. I'm like, well, everyone else did three assignments. I'm like, yeah, but the point was never the assignments. And it wasn't about that balance of equity. You know, like if a kid has dyslexia, they're going to be doing way more work for every assignment that they do. So what if you reduce the reading and they still meet the learning objective? And in or project, they're going to be doing a different type of assignment. Like exactly. that's the other thing. It's like, why do they have to do this thing? Why can't they do this? And I think that also is a cultural thing in a classroom, right? You got to work with students because they, you know, this idea of fair being, it's not always equal working with students to understand that is also a cultural shift for them. And, you know, saying that, you know what, how do you best show your learning? Well, I do this way. Well, you know what? This student shows their learning in this way and we're going to allow them to do that. And they go, Oh, that makes sense. Like that makes sense. Which I think this brings me around to something we talked about before we hit the record button on tonight's episode is um, we're talking about student agency. And I loved that you talked about saying to students, what do you think would best demonstrate mastery of this particular standard where you ask them and they share, or when you talked about different types of assessment saying, okay, how could you best share this? And the kid's going to say, I'm great at video or I'm great at audio. And you're going to give them choice. And if they're choosing their study, if they're choosing their topic, it just makes sense to me to say, choose the, the, the mode of expression that you're going to use. And maybe with younger kids, you're going to have to structure it and say, give them less choices because like we said before, choice can be hard if you've never done it before. But if you can give them agency to say, here's what I will study, here's how I will study it. In, within the framework of learning that you've provided, how powerful is that? You know, and, and for me, that brings up what I think is a pitfall of project-based learning. I think that if you want project-based learning and you're going to turn a kid loose to make a lot of choices about their uh, learning environment or, or, or with like personalized learning, right? Um, I, when I go to schools and we're going to talk about this, one of my first question is, um, how do you feel about kids going to the bathroom whenever they just, they, wherever they want to go, just leave it. <laughs> and they, they look at me like I'm crazy, but it, it says a lot about the culture of freedom and control that kids have. If you're not willing to let a kid choose to go to the bathroom when nature calls, right? And schools are the only place probably in the world where you have to ask to go to the bathroom. Um, you, you're really going to struggle with letting them choose things like how are they going to assess? When are they going to have the freedom? Um, like what work they're working on in every given classroom. So really think about that culture and think about how the small policies that you have are going to affect that bigger, broad culture of project-based learning. And what that really hits on is this idea of that it PBL and other types of methods really become an identity shift. And that's why it's so challenging. I think when you talk about changing your practice, you're actually changing your identity in this because you're, if you've been teaching in a way for so long, or, you know, you, you believe in a certain way of teaching, you know, and then this comes along and it's different from you. It's not just about the skills. It's about the will and the, the, how do I feel about myself in terms of who am I as a teacher and that might be uncomfortable and there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. And so we have to be patient and work through that. And I, cause it's, it is about me internally and how I see myself in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's definitely an identity piece to it. Well, thank you so much for your discussion. We're, we have a tradition here on our, on the, so we've been thinking podcast where we end with a couple of questions just about you to give our listeners some idea of like a, a look inside of who you are as a person. So if you are okay with that, I'm going to throw a couple of questions at you. 
Sounds good. Okay. Question number one, the most significant experience you had as a student. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I love this one. Um, I, I had um, a, a math teacher back in the States and, and it was geometry was the course. And, you know, I, I, I used, I, I don't, I, I was never, a, we always say this, never a, a genuine math kid, but I did it and I was pretty good at it and I liked it. But uh, we, we used to have this thing called um, an experiential week that we called focus week at shout out to my school, international school in Bellevue, Washington. And and Miss Thor Grimson. And what we would do was we went on a schooner adventurous. Okay. So we're out there in the ocean and we're doing, we're, we are just out there. But I remember that she identified, she knew that I had done some work um, with um, some of the geometry skills in navigating because it was kind of a task or assignment. Like, you know, how do you plot where you're going to move? And she yeah. says, Andrew, and she went to the, you know, like the captain of the ship literally and said, we need you, we need him to navigate. And so here I am plotting the course for our ship in, in, in like the San Juan islands area of Washington, in Washington state off the coast there, like using my math skills that I had used in classroom for an authentic context. And I just remember feeling so like excited that I was using something authentic that my teacher had seen that in me and said, you know, you can do this. So that was, that's probably one of my most powerful ones. I think it's beautiful because not just like cool, but beautiful because that, that woman saw the work that you had done and a chance to apply it in reality. And then said, I have the faith in you. Like I, I have faith that you're going to be able to pull this off. And I really think that one of the most powerful things about letting go and giving something over to the kids is that, you're saying, I trust you and you can do this. Right. And hundred percent. And as a parent, the times where I can look at my kids and say, I, I don't know the answer, but I believe in you. And I know that you have within you what it takes to solve this. So, and then you turn them loose. And if they believe that you believe in them, it just makes the process of believing in yourself so much better. So, okay. So question number two is a little bit of an edge, but in education, I think you know, there's, there's things in education that, that get to us and bother us. And I try to be an optimist and I, you know, like we were talking about cynics and skeptics and skeptics good and cynic is bad, but there's sometimes things that we don't like in education, right? Like for instance, mm-hmm. for me, the word rigor literally grinds me to pieces because of you what mean rigor, you mean rigor mortis, rigor mortis, just- like unflinching, unbending, inflexible. Like we have to build rigor into it. I'm like, that's not good. But tell me about something in education that you're just like, delete it, get rid of it. We need to undo this now. Grading. Grading is gross. Um, And I don't mean, and I understand that we have to report out things, but this idea of like, I'm grading, like I am marking for points. I am grading all the time. No, feedback is not the same as grading. And so when I, when people equivocate the two, I get really upset because I believe in feedback and I believe in helping students get better. Grades don't necessarily do that. And when we're grading all the time and not focusing on feedback, we're not doing the right thing. So people say, I got to go grade this stuff. I just, it's like a trigger word for me. I I understand the reality of it. And I understand we have to report, but if you're grading all the time, something is wrong. So the next one is, Tell me if you could make everyone in the world watch one movie all the way through, what movie would you make them watch? Oh, that's really hard. Oh gosh. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to actually go with something a little provocative yep. um, because I like to stir the pot, but I think everyone should watch the documentary Paris is burning. 
Paris is burning. Um, Paris is burning. Um, and what it is, it's not about Paris. It's like, by the way, um, it's actually about um, drag balls in, um, in New York City, I think in like the early like 80s. But what it does is it goes into the queer culture and uh, basically uh, queer people of color and kind of the challenges and successes and the empowerment and the disempowerment that occurs uh, within that context. Um, and so for me, like watching that, it really, you know, really opened my eyes and helped me understand privilege, even within the context of different identity sets and, and learning about something new, you know, just to be, this is definitely, it's definitely a more provocative, uh, documentary and it definitely pushes you. And it's, you know, it's sometimes it might be language that's inappropriate just as there, but you know, if you're willing to try it out it might push your thinking and make you expose you to something new and different that's awesome i'm gonna definitely go take a look hey there's um, a documentary that i absolutely love with all my heart that i'm gonna throw back your way to kind of trade is have you ever seen the florida project no i would actually sounds interesting okay the florida project is a story about a family that lives in a hotel in florida and in a similar way it portrays the humanity of people in really difficult conditions and it portrays them without judgment and just something in the way that you were describing that other video was something that i saw and really valued and that movie is one that um ever since i saw it i will never pass up a chance to share it with other people because i think there's something beautiful in it I'm now adding it to my long list of cue of things that I need to watch. And once you've watched the Florida project, tweet back at me because not enough people have seen it. And anytime I got a chance to see, to talk to somebody about um, that, that knows it and appreciates it, I always will very much like project-based learning. Notice the segue as we leave. Ah, Very clever. I really appreciate Andrew one. um, Some of the early experiences I had with you on Twitter, just talking about project-based learning and your, your expertise on this subject. And I hope that, you know, what we have talked about tonight is going to provide people with some motivation and, and some support when they kind of dive in. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. hundred percent. Thanks for having me. Always. It's always wonderful to have an authentic conversation about the work. So Andrew, if, if people want to reach out to you or see more of your writing or, or connect with you, where might they on social media or, or, or the internet see you? Well, my Twitter handle is at Beta Miller, uh, B-E-T-A-M-I-L-L-E-R. Um, and you can follow my nerdy things out there. Um, you can also go to Andrew K. Miller, uh, notice the K.com. Lots of Andrew Millers out there. And I've got lots of, I got links to my blogs and kind of where I write for. And then I also try to write more regularly for Edutopia. So you can go there and take a look at some of the things I've put out there. Thank you very much. I hope that people will go and take a look at some of the great work that you've been doing. Appreciate it. So we've been thinking is sponsored and brought to you by EdTech Teacher and the EdTech Teacher Summer Workshop Series. From Boston to Chicago and San Francisco, the EdTech Teacher team will be leading workshops all summer on topics ranging from creativity with G Suite to design thinking and 3D printing to AR and VR and EDU. There's a workshop for every educator. Learn more at edtechteacher.org forward slash summer.